I watch film, but I'd be honest, I mean, when I first started watching film, I was just watching the game. Steve Gokdena, welcome to the UK Packers podcast. It's your host, as usual, at NFL on Twitter and also follow the group at UK Packers. And of course, it's Monday. So it's Celebrity Monday with my celebrity friend at Ryan Peacock NFL, my fellow co-founder of the group. Ryan, how are things? I'm good, but I don't know if you, you need to restart that or there was some sort of glitch on the system because it was just, I don't know. I don't know what that was at the beginning. Uh, what? What, the, the Irish? Well, you say it again. You've got dinner? Yeah, okay. I thought you played something backwards. <laughs> Do you think it was Satanic Verses or something? Yeah, yeah, that was odd. Yeah, no, hold on, right? I just thought, look, you know, I'm I'm super paddy here, right? I'm the twinkly-eyed okay. Irishman. I'm actually wearing full uh, leprechaun get-up as we speak. And, you know, I just have to come... Because you're so English, you know what I mean? You've you've got the, you know... You're from, from London, right? Just, mm-hmm. what, Leighton Buzzard? Yeah, no, yeah, it would do. The happening spot. So, like... <laughs> You know, and I have to bring my Irishness, so I just thought I'd bring the Irish. Because you know what? We're the UK Packers, but the UK and Irish Packers. But when I say I'm Irish, I'm part of the UK Packers. They go, yeah, that makes sense. Irish is in, uh, you know, Ireland's in the UK. It's no. Hold on a second. You know, so the only thing that I can bring to the podcast, because it's called the UK Packer podcast, is my Irish language. Because people don't even know there's an Irish language. It's like Welsh. Yeah, well, what is it, Gaelic? Gaelic, yeah, and I mean, of look, course, if yeah. there's if there's the demand out there, I'll do a full podcast in Irish. But I'm pretty sure that you know the population target audience for that's probably one. Yeah, I wouldn't. Don't invite me on that one. I won't have. A, <laughs> I'm not going to have a lot to say on that. Hey, now we've been at enough Super Bowl parties. I mean, you get enough drinking, you know, your language sounds an awful lot like Irish. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I definitely nobody knows what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is the third in the series of the UK Packers history podcast series. So we've done 1919, you know, the beginning of the Packers up to 1930. Episode two was 1930 to 1940. And this is our third one. So this is the 1940 to 1950 Packers. And some interesting stuff uh, here, Ryan, isn't there really? It's, I mean, the underpinning theme of the whole thing is World War Two. Yeah, and um, it, it obviously doesn't help. He- it weighs heavily on the Packers during this time, but it also weighs heavily on the whole league. And uh, I think really, in actual fact, it kind of changes um, certainly some of the way in which football's played and so on. And, and hopefully we'll give a, a feeling for that as we go through today. Yeah, because, I mean, all week we prepare for these podcasts and it's not just reading off Wikipedia. I mean, we go out there. I've been trawling through an unbelievable amount of newspaper clippings and all this. And I feel now that I've got a proper real sense of what was going on at that time, you know, a real good perspective. So let's try bring that to the listeners. Uh, you know, I've, I've trawled through countless photos of this. Do you know what they used to do back then? These stage photos and I'd have Curly Lambo kneeling on the ground and he'd have six dudes around them and he'd be pointing at something in the distance, just some random. It's like a Renaissance painting. You know, everybody's pointing outside the painting. So he's just pointing off into the distance, posing. And some of the lads are even looking at the camera and underneath the excerpt, it doesn't even say, here's a few posy Egypts now pointing off at nothing. It says, Curly Lambo strategizing with assistant coach, you know, and it's it's so laughable. It's like what you were saying about the players, you know, with that those silly Heisman style poses. Why did they do that? Like, um, well, I'm guessing it was just because the technology wasn't good enough, and it would have just been a blur. But it's uh, some of them are quite funny, and maybe I think next time we get together for our flag games, then we'll have to we'll have to do some in the style. 
Oh yeah, reenact because I even the worst one I've seen so far. Um, that, you know, because you know, in a camera trick, when you and your mates get together and everyone looks down at someone who's lying on the ground and they take a picture up of just people's heads, they did that one with Curly Lambeau and George Hallis. And these weren't young lads, you know, drinking bottles of Wicked or Budweiser and playing beer pong. You know, these were the top coaches in the NFL and they're looking down on this camera. It's a bit ridiculous. The worst one, though, was someone decided it was a great idea to get a picture of, of uh, you know, the field, Lambeau Field or whatever, or Milwaukee Stadium. And they got all the players' heads and just their heads and just had floating heads in the picture, you know. And that was apparently better than the team photo. It was just these floating heads. And they made them wear their helmets so they look like, you know, they've got no hair. So it's just, you know, 50, 60-odd generic-looking heads floating in the distance. It's uh, unnerving, to say the least. (laughs) Yeah, I I think there's one of of the favourite ones we've got is, uh, I'm trying to think who it is now, it's possibly Hudson and somebody else, and they're kind of drawing a a play in in the dirt. Oh, well, that's, God, yeah. well, that's what they're leading you to believe. But, yeah, um, yeah okay. some really good pictures. <laughs> Technology was so bad back then. They didn't even have pens. They just used to draw in the dirt and carve it out of stone. Hey, it worked. It yeah. worked. Yeah, well, it's an interesting period. So I suppose we'll kick it off like we usually do. I'll give a sort of run through the years and we'll pick out what we found that was interesting with each year. Not to try make it boring. Try keep it, you know, fast-paced and, and nice. So up to this point now, 1950, they'll... The Packers will win six world titles in this period. 29-30-31, which was a three-peat, wouldn't be done again until the 60s. They won in 36-39. And then in this period, they only ever won it once. So it was 1944. And then they kind of fell off into the abyss. Um, but we'll get to that later. 1940, uh, there were champions in the previous year. But this year, they got beaten by the Bears twice. Uh, so they got trounced by the Bears in their second game of the season, 41-10. And now Don Hudson, who's a legend, and I'd love to get some of his signed merch, uh, God rest his soul. He had, a, he had a knee injury previously, but he came back this season and led the NFL in scoring. The Packers were second in the division with a fairly high score. But, you know, with the war, uh, the war wasn't the only sort of thing that the NFL was battling this season. There was so many sort of upstart leagues uh, that were happening. So the AFL kicked off, and that's what we sort of spoke about in the last podcast. The Milwaukee Chiefs, uh, they were doing well. They were set up by George M. Harris, and funnily enough, uh, the coach of those was Tony Cahoon. Now, he was an ex-Packers player. And you'd kind of think there was a bit of conflict of interest there, that there was another team in Milwaukee at the time, and Lambeau wouldn't have been happy. But in fact, you know, Curly Lambeau, in his cocky style, came out and said, look, I don't care. It, you know, the Packers are great. It's not going to affect the Packers. It's fine. Now, that had nearly come back to bite him uh, later on. But for now, he was happy. So... I was looking through newspaper clippings in 1940. Loads of press for this all-star game against the Collegians. And Green Bay got waxed. You know, they hadn't... No, not in this game, but they, they hadn't really seen the all-star Collegians as something to, to behold. They were the world champions. You know, who are these guys? They're only college kids. But they, they ended up getting waxed. So they actually brought Johnny Blood out of retirement in 1940. Uh, he'd helped the Packers win in 29, 30, 31, 36. Veteran, you know, a funny guy. Look up his, his story. He retired from Pittsburgh Penguins uh, mid-season and he came back to Green Bay to coach the backs and Lambeau at the time said about him, look, he can outrun most of the people on the squad even when he retired and he would have been fairly on at that stage. So, you know, interesting story. 1941, they tied first in the Western Division. So again, the Packers are always keeping kind of a high level, which is a contrast to what you'll see as we get later on in the podcast. But again, the Bears were dominant. They bet the Packers 25-17 in the first game and everyone thought, oh, here we go. The Bears are going to crush everybody. But the Packers kind of put in an upset win then later in the season and bet them 16-14. They made it to the playoffs then, the first time they'd reached the playoffs, I think, since 1933. Um... 
you know, to have a playoff game to decide everything. And uh, the Packers were beaten by the Bears 33-14. So an important part to note is, although recently our dominance is that we, you know, always trounce Jay Cutler, Wingy Jay Cutler and the Bears, it wasn't always that way. You know, the Bears had their upper hand back in the day and Curly Lambeau used to even remark I think we need bodybuilding courses because the Bears were just massive more so when you look at Bronco and Nagurski and an important thing Ryan I think that I found out about this period was is that you know where people give out about Roger Goodell right the commissioner yeah yeah and they always say like good is nobody's doing and all this type of stuff so I mean we didn't even have a commissioner in the NFL till 1941 so like there was no commissioner all the owners used to just get together that's kind of what I was saying before when George Hallis and Curly Lambeau and all the owners they'd get together every year have an annual meeting decide what they want to do but they decided look in order for us to combat the likes of the AFL who were getting bigger and bigger now that sort of rival to the NFL they said we're going to need a commissioner to handle this so uh, George Hallis and Curly Lambeau and all the rest of them decided that they were going to make uh, a guy called Elmer Layden, the commissioner. So there was a president at the time, but he became the commissioner. And this was a big job because he was getting paid 20 grand a year. And even back then, I mean, that, w- that was an insane amount of money. So they gave him a five-year contract and he saw the league through World War II and, you know, the replacement players, which we'll get around to now shortly. Um, and he actually investigated the league. There was a betting scandal going on. Now, I'm pretty sure there was a few patties in there now, you know, betting on a few of those down the pub with the, with the lads. Um, and Elmer Layden, he was fairly famous himself, so he was in Notre Dame, surprise, surprise, so was Curly Lambeau, or Notre Dame for all of our American uh, listeners, and he was a fullback in the legendary Four Horsemen, have you ever heard of these guys, Ron? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah. it's amazing is that like even us now, we've, we've heard of these lads now, you know, Jim, Jim Crowley, Elmer Layden, Don Miller and uh harry struldreyer so these were the they were just unbelievable and they only lost two games in three years so they lost one game in 1922 and one game in 1923 ridiculous so uh you know this guy come on he was the commissioner he was fairly successful um and that sort of leads us into 1942 and this is where the war really kicks off and i know you looked at a lot of stuff around this ryan and and some of the people that were involved in the war Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1941 and that had a profound effect because it brought America into into World War II. Before that, you know, they were kind of informally given information and guns and some troops and stuff to Europe. But when they got attacked for Pearl Harbor, you know, it was on. So we saw some tragic times, so many lads being drafted and there was actually, for our own beloved Packers, there ended up being a fatality. Yeah, and um, I think actually when Pearl Harbor was attacked, there was actually three games going on in the league. So this um, it certainly struck right at a time where obviously no one was expecting it to happen. Yeah, you know, life was going on as usual. Um, yeah, certainly one of our own Packers. Uh, again, you know, I like the guys with the the nicknames. Oh yeah, uh, a player called Howard Smiley Johnson. Sounds like now, an unhappy chap, really. Uh, well, it, it does go on to say that people knew him around the area for always being a guy that was very. You know, always on a high, yeah. always happy, always, you know, happy to speak to people and just somebody that sort of brought a smile to others as well. And so obviously he got that name. Um, now, he wasn't one of the biggest players in, in in the league, wasn't one of the biggest players for the Packers, but he did play at a time when the Packers were obviously a strong team and had, you know, many, many um, stars in that team. Yeah. Um, and essentially he he is, he joins up, to the US Marine Corps and he goes off to fight in World War Two, and he now has essentially like a, a shrined area or, or, or a display at the Hall of uh, the Green Bay Hall of Fame yeah um, sort of attributed to him and what he gave up for his country 
uh, and obviously honouring him as a Packer, as a Marine, um, and as an American. Uh, he unfortunately died in a battle in Iwo Jima yeah. in 1945. So it affected the league in quite a big way. But that's how, certainly just for the Packers anyway, that's that's one person who it affected uh, the Packers personally. Yeah, like World War II claimed the lives of 23 NFLers. So there was 21 active reformer players and Smiley Johnson being one. There was an ex-head coach and there was someone from the front office then as well. Um, you know, all died at that time. And Smiley Johnson, again, the story goes, he was hit by a shell. And uh, there was other people hit by this, you know, the same shell that exploded beside this group of uh, soldiers. Mm-hmm. And he turned around and told the first aiders, you know, go and help them. And he ended up dying of his injuries. And what, what I find crazy about this whole thing is that, I mean, he was the one fatality that the Packers had, but it took Ron Wolf uh, 10 years ago. So uh, he, he said to the Packers, you know, we should we should put up a shrine to this guy. And, you know, that's typical Ron Wolf because I was actually just reading about him randomly. Uh, there was, you know, the lads were being inducted to the Packers Hall of Fame, I think it was yesterday. So they had Nick the Pick. Uh, he got in. So, and Ron Wolf was only in the Packers Hall of Fame. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I'm making an idiot of myself, but 2015, I think he went in to the Packers Hall of Fame. Can you get any more Irish in that phrase? So uh, he actually, he campaigned for Smiley Johnson to have that memorial, but he also campaigned for a guy that not a lot of people know about, but I actually have a signed picture of him and that's Bobby Dillon. Have you heard of this guy? No, go on, tell me. Now again, this is more for the 1950s and we get more into him now, but it's just along the lines of, you know, it took Ron Wolfe to campaign for Smiley and Ron Wolfe came out in 2015 and said, look, lads, Bobby Dillon, He's the all-time interception leader for the Packers, still is. Uh, he was back in the 1950s and he quit quite early and he went off to, you know, he started his own company that were hugely successful. I think he only died in the 70s or 80s. Uh, he was 84 when he died anyway. Um, and he only had one eye, so he had one working eye because of a childhood accident and he was still the leader in interceptions. Now, I don't know if that says anything about the guys who are playing now. <laughs> if, you know, a one-eyed guy can do it or just how dominant this guy was. And you better believe it's the second one because this guy was a bit of a beast. And Ron Wolf was even campaigning on his behalf. But again, let's leave that to the 1950s podcast. But yeah, so uh, poor El Smiley. He was given the silver star then for uh, conspicuous gallantry, they called it, because he, he fought in Saipan. And the poor guy left behind his wife, and he only had a one-year-old daughter at the time, um, which is awful. Yeah, I mean that 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 obviously that that quote about him, you know, pointing to other people, and that that just says something about um, those that sort of knew him at the time and said about him about how he was a very much a man that was, you know, put himself out there for everybody else in the community, and that's why he got that nickname. It's why people thought a lot of him, and then obviously right up until his death, and he still had that same attitude that. You know, essentially everyone else come first. Yeah, and I mean, as men, you know, when you put yourself into that position, I mean, I've got a child, he's just over three months, and I can't imagine leaving my kid to go off and fight in war, then being injured and to point to somebody else while my family's at home. It's awfully tragic, but as you say, I mean, it's typical Packer people, you know, it's it's tragic. I think we'll move on because I'm going to start weeping at the mic here. Uh, 1943, they're second in the Western Division, so they're still sort of motoring through the war, uh, it's the second year of the war now and the NFL was decimated but you know it's kind of a level playing field in the sense that one third would you believe of all NFL players 
were drafted not by the NFL but by the Marines and by the military so it was a whole different draft was sapping the players um, so like we see in the likes of the Philadelphia Eagles and the Pittsburgh Penguins became the Steagles they had to merge together to survive and Bronco Nagurski was brought out of retirement which we spoke about in the last podcast so he was 35 and he spent six years outside and he got brought back by the Bears now still a big guy still helpful to the Bears but again I mean that was desperate times desperate measures but then we saw the emergence in 1943 of a guy who goes by the name of Tony Canadeo. And again, people will know him, and maybe he'll only know him because his jersey was retired. Uh, but again, he had a massive influence in 1943. Yeah, and, um, those that are going on the trip again this year, as soon as you walk into that atrium at Lambo, you're going to see those banners held up of all those retired jerseys. And his is on there. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, again, he's on that that Legends walk that I spoke about last week. Go and find his statue, you know. He's a, he's a big, big uh, character and big, big person in, in the history of the Packers. Um, he was uh, mainly known as a halfback, or essentially now I think we call him a running back. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he he got some big, big numbers. Um, apparently, well, I say apparently, he was the first ever Packers player to rush for 1,000 yards in a season. Wow. So, you know, this, this guy's really, you know, he's a big, big deal when it comes to Packers history. But one thing I learned about him... Um, and I certainly didn't know about him, and I don't know, maybe it's common knowledge and I just missed this, but apparently when he first turned up, he actually was the understudy to the quarterback, Cecil Isbell, who we spoke about in the last podcast. Right. Um, so it turns out that he must have come into the league or, or out of college anyway as a, as a quarterback, uh, and you know, and for whatever reason ended up changing his position. I think we'll both agree that he obviously did it to a pretty good standard. Yeah, because it's notable that sort of the Packers at this point were looking for a passer and the passes in 1943 were thrown by Tony Canadeo and another guy called Irv Komp who, was, who ended up being very accomplished by the end of it because Cecil Isbell quit to become the coach of the Purdue Boilermakers. And again, we sort of spoke about him and the reason again, and we can reiterate, it's shocking to believe that someone at the height of his game uh, like Cecil Isbell, you know, he left because he saw so many players being let go by Curly Lambeau. And if you listen to the podcast out there uh, that we had with Leroy Butler and he gets on and says that you know Ron Wolf came in to the dressing room and told him lads most of you aren't going to be here I'm rebuilding the team and most of you don't have a place in it you know it's that was kind of that came from Curly Lambeau was doing the same stuff back in the day and Cecil didn't want that to happen to him so said right that's it I'm jumping ship something funny I found actually by uh, thumbing through some of the paper clippings about 1943 Don Hudson who's an absolute favorite of mine uh, he announced his retirement in this year. He said, no, I'm quitting. He had a chest injury, right? But Curly Lambeau, again, you know, tried to coax him back to play. So there's a picture of him signing his contract to play again for an extra year. Now, again, he quoted a chest injury and sticking out of his mouth is this, like, the biggest pipe you'll ever see. And I was thinking, <laughs> the, like, the guy with the chest injury and he's there smoking tobacco from you know, something that would rival a tree trunk. So it's funny. He became a Packers coach then. He became the assistant coach in 1944, which was the year that they became world champions. So that was the last time really, Ryan, before the 60s, wasn't it, that the Packers showed some sort of dominance that, you know, ended up in a trophy. Yeah, yeah, sure. And you got to remember that wasn't wasn't that the sort of the times when we're all being led to believe that cigarettes were somehow medicinal and good for you? Oh, yeah, yeah. So maybe that was, you know, the, the doctor... <laughs> Or the team doctor at the Packers said, you know, have a, have a good pipe, have a smoke on that. That'll, <laughs> that'll fix the chest injury. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, so 1944 World Champions. I mean, it was a mixed bag really that year because, again, the war was still raging. You know, they had young and old players. 
And Irv Comp again hooked up with Don Hudson, uh, Ted Fritch, who was you know starting to become a veteran uh, at that stage, and Clark Kinkle. Um, yeah. So you know a bit a big game for the Packers, and again they would not see the success till the sixties. Yeah, I mean, oh, you just mentioned Ted Fritch, and I've got I've got a little list written down here. This guy is not just you know a fantastic American football player that ends up playing for the world famous, world greatest Green Bay Packers, yeah. but he also plays. And let me get this right. So he plays American uh, football. He plays baseball. He plays basketball. Okay. Yep. So he's a running back for Green Bay. He also then plays two seasons uh, for a team called the Oshkosh All-Stars of the National Basketball League. And then he goes and plays outfielder for the Portsmouth Cubs and the Nashville Vols and then the Na- the Los Angeles Angels minor league teams um, in, <laughs> in 1944. So this is... If I've got this right, anyway, the two, he's playing baseball the same time he's playing football and the same time he's playing basketball. He's just doing it all at the same time. Um, and, you know, actually, he's such a, a big sports star that his, his high school actually go on to name their football field after him. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's that's unreal. We've we've, we've got players in, in football we've mentioned in previous podcasts that play on defence and offence and maybe kick and punt and all this. This guy's actually playing three different sports. <laughs> you know, this is it's some achievement. Sounds like a guy who just doesn't like going home. Like, the, the missus <laughs> must have been giving out to him something fierce. Yeah, yeah. Got to just stay out of the house. Oh, yeah. Like, what are you doing now? I'm playing basketball. But you were playing that. You're playing football yesterday. Oh, no, yeah. And I've got to play, you know, cricket and hurling and Gaelic football Saturday. See ya. Yeah. Um, I know certainly we'd get earache if we were doing that. Oh, yeah. Look, we're doing the podcast on borrowed time. We're, you know, trying to work in the brownie points just to do this. Um, but yeah, do you know what? 1944 World Champions it was all great, but it was a weird time for the NFL because again they got you know the whole 40s to 50s they were always being challenged by a rival league, um, and it kind of annoyed the NFL to an extent, and because they thought they were the big boys in the playground and they wanted to bully the other dudes, you know they wanted them to go away. So in 1944 the AFC was created. So. The football war was on, as as well as the normal war. So set up by a guy called Arch Ward. Now, we encountered Arch Ward sort of a little bit earlier in these years because he was asked to be the commissioner. And he went and said to them, no, pick Elmer Layden, I'm not interested. So he kind of, he was a big sports editor in Chicago for the Chicago Tribune. He kind of fell out with the NFL and said, okay, that's fine. He got a list of, because there was a load of, uh, you know, cities that wanted their own franchise, but they weren't allowed to join the league. They got annoyed Archboard saw this, you know, he got annoyed at the league himself for whatever reason and decided to set up the AAFC. But the NFL, again, in typical sort of big boy fashion, turned around and said, this was the quote from uh, Elmer Layden, first get a ball, then make a schedule and then play a game. It was kind of like, you know, and that was sort of shortened and quoted then over the years, like get a ball and play, you know, because they were sort of seeing that they weren't going to make it. And, you know, he was right for two years because the AAFC played the first game in 1946. But it did challenge the NFL every year that when it was set up to go, you know, and play a game. And famously, you know, the Cleveland Browns where people say, oh, yeah, they were world champions. You know, they were champions of the AAFC for many years and they challenged the NFL because, they, you know, the Cleveland Browns were the cream of the crop. But the NFL always refused to play the AAFC because they thought they legitimized the league. You know, when you have an upstart, because we get that right, don't we? That we're the UK Packers. We've been going for years. But then you'll get a little upstart guy who decides to start his own, you know, UK Packers group and starts insulting us and saying he's the big boys and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, yeah, well, we put them in their place. Well, we, we, we invite them in. We invite them into the team and then they generally tell us not interested. Yeah. And then they disappear. 
Yeah, they tell us where to go. And I mean, look, a bit like this league. A bit like, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, in fairness, this league did join the other league. So we have 1945 now, the end of the war. Um, Don Hudson again said he'd retire. He says, if I ever play again, I'll jump off the Empire State Building. Uh, which was unfortunate because he actually was back. So the October game against the Lions, which is just brilliant, uh, second quarter of that game this season, he caught four touchdown passes and kicked five extra points in the second quarter alone. So he scored 29 points in a single quarter and they beat Detroit 57-21, which is just is that, typical Don Hudson. Like. Yeah, that was was that a record? Oh yeah, it's a was record. That, that was one of his records, isn't it? Yeah. I wonder if that's still standing. Surely it is. It's got to be, surely. And we yeah. never found out, by the way, who beat his record which Seattle Seahawks it was. Oh, yeah, we have to find that out, yeah, because we had a, what, a one... One euro. On one euro. Yeah, you decided euro was worth more than a pound. Oh, yeah, definitely is, probably still is, but for how long, we don't know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, 1945 again, I mean, the NFL get challenged. There's this upstart league called the United States Football League. The commissioner is actually Red Grange, who we saw in the last podcast. So teams, again, were desperate to get a franchise. And so for 10 grand, they put down a deposit. And uh, they said they were going to join the league. Red Grange, come on. But then he said, oh, that's too much work. So he resigned as being commissioner. And the league just fell apart. They actually started to back up in 1965. And again, around this era, there's a guy who sounds very Irish to me, John Chick Meehan. He starts up the Trans-American Football League. And again, they go by the wayside. So again, the 40s is just full of people seeing that the NFL is getting more popular and really trying to get a piece, really, you know? See, it's strange, isn't it? Because obviously the NFL suffers as such for a shortage in players as players are drafted to go overseas. Maybe young players don't even have the chance to come into college or even come out of college because they're being drafted to go overseas for the war. And then rather than, you know, these leagues sort of thinking we can strengthen together in numbers as one, you start getting all these... Like you say, these upstart, these new leagues, giving it a go, dying out, giving it a go, dying out. And it just seems mad that, I mean, there must have been some politics back in the day. Maybe we look into that another time, but it's crazy that they couldn't just come together at that point. Yeah, it's a typical case of opportunism. You know, they see sort of the league is down. So they think if everyone's suffering, they'll jump on and get a piece of the pie. And, you know, in 1946, it kind of came to a head because... The AAFC started to raise the wages to an incredibly high level. And even, you know, your boy Ted Fritch jumped ship. He went to the Cleveland Browns, would you believe? And Curly Lambeau was really annoyed about it all. And he ended up coming back with his tail between his legs saying, oh, I I made a mistake. But they pushed the salaries up so high that the Packers... And again, Curly Lambeau and sort of his arrogance in a way. And this is how he he starts to kind of fall out of favour as the 40s go on. You know, we see him as this legend now. If you don't know a whole lot about him, you just assume, you know, it's called Lambeau Field. Why not? He's, He's a legend. But, you know, it's, he starts to get out of favour with the Packers as the league goes on. So he said at the very start, you know, whatever, you can start your own league. The Packers are always going to be great. But that doesn't always happen because, you know yourself, when a team starts to lose and the crowd numbers start to go down, if you're being propped up by the finances on ticket sales alone, it's not going to bode too well for you. Because that happens in the Premier League, right? You know, where because like you support West Ham, who would have been an insanely big club back in the day. If they have a poor run of results, well, then, you know, you're in trouble. Oh, I'm not going to have that. We, we've we always got high numbers of fans through thick and thin, man. Oh, there's but never been any drop-off, no? I understand where you're coming from. Maybe it's more of a Tottenham thing. I don't <laughs> I just get a little dig in there. A little dig in on the podcast. We'll see how many tweets I get for that one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, 1946, again, uh, a hard old time because eventually Don Hudson hangs up his boots. He does retire. He comes on as, as an assistant coach. But the, the funny thing about it is, is that if you look at the results from 1946 and onwards, 
they stop going from being second tied for second to third to fourth to fifth and they get worse and you know Tony, Tony Canadeo and Ted Fritsch uh, Walt Schinkman they all carry the ball trying to you know have a running attack because they've no aerial attack left and Irv Comp was in at uh, quarterback now again he was very accomplished but again he was thrown to nothing receivers and Irv Comp again Ryan is one of the lads on, on your list isn't he yeah I mean Irv Comp is, is again big name in Packers history um, played seven years with the Packers inducted into Pack of Hall of Fame in 86 so you know he, he is a big deal but you're right it's maybe he unfortunately just just missed the the real sort of cream of that time, um, but yeah, it, it goes on to say obviously Comp had sight in only one eye, um, and and it's uh, mad. It's it's yeah, crazy how it's, you can be that proficient at the at the quarterback position and only have one eye because if you try just that whole thing of if you close one eye and try outstretch your arms and put your fingers together, you can't do it. How can you throw a ball or you know an eighty yard bomb downfield if you've only got one eye? Well, this is the thing. I mean, one of the things that mainly affects you when, if you if you lose vision in an eye, is, is your sense of depth. Yeah. Or your depth per- perception, um, and you maybe even struggle to um, sort of judge the speeds of things either going away from you and towards you. So that is everything in terms of the defensive backs coming at your passes and your receivers running away from you. I mean, yeah. Obviously, neither of us, uh, you know, we're fortunate enough to not know what that's like. And, and But that's one hell of a thing to adjust to and then become that competent in a position that is all about vision. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it and, you know, not that we'd wish it on anybody, but if it was a lineman, maybe a defensive lineman, something like that, then maybe, you know, fighting in the trenches, it's something you could do. Mm. I, d- I don't know. I mean, even that would be hard because if you have somebody come from the side, you know, it's, it's difficult really at any position, but you would think certainly at quarterback, that's got to be one of the hardest positions to deal with an injury like that. Yeah, I don't think you'd be able to take the stick. I mean, if you're on the, if you're a lineman, they'd say, oh, it brings a whole new meaning to the word blindside. Hi-hi. And you'd be like, oh, come on, let, let it go. Jesus, oh. I'm blind in one eye. There's a reason we don't get you to do jokes on these. Uh, no. Uh, yeah. No, yeah, sorry about that. Um, right. So 1947, again, <laughs> they, they kind of go downhill. So as you say, I mean, if, the, if their best option is a one-eyed quarterback, you know, I'd, I'd easy take a one-legged Aaron Rodgers over a one-eyed, you know, Irv Comp. Um, so did, they started, didn't we have that? Didn't we have that just the, the other, the other yeah, year? We, we did that, yeah. So, I mean, the best quarterback in the league, Aaron Rodgers. The second best quarterback in the league? Aaron Rodgers on one leg. Aaron Rodgers on one leg. I mean, he's even better than Matt Stafford. Um <laughs> we got jokes so uh, 1947 again they're still struggling Russ Letlow retires and Lambeau only now installs the T formation would you believe but again they have Jack Jacobs in a quarterback because uh, he has to share with Irv Comp and they can't get out and running now Jack Jacobs is actually an interesting guy uh, he was drafted in the second round of the 42 draft he's bounced around between the Rams and uh, he goes to Washington for a time but in 1947 he acts as the quarterback in green bay not only that but he's the lead punter in the nfl in 1947 um but you know he was kind of he's he was the jay cutler of and that may be unfair to him of the packers organization back then he 21 touchdown touchdowns with 41 interceptions so he was kind of a bit of a turnover machine that never works um well brett father's a turnover machine that worked yeah but <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm just joshing with you. He but, wasn't that bad. 
do you know what around this time as well it's funny because just before we come on there was an awful lot of uh, people in that we set up a whatsapp group for all the people going to green bay and uh you know if you're interested give us a shout but you know this jack jacobs guy actually became a legend in the canadian football league which again is what some people are watching now because the nfl is none so you know the, the canadian football league at the time is very run intensive you'll find with all games they kind of develop so when the nfl started it was very run intensive the skill positions started to get better and better and then you'll have more pass come in so the cfl was kind of stuck back in the stone age at that time but you know he went to the winnipeg, winnipeg blue bombers he had eleven thousand passing yards on 104 touchdowns which was he averaged like 20 touchdowns a season and they ended up being able to build a new stadium there and nowadays they say the Coles stadium is the house that Peyton built because he was so successful with the Coles they could build that big massive stadium that Andrew Luck now uh, cozies up in but back then they said that this was the house that Jack built which works beautifully and he's in the CFL Hall of Fame um, would you put any stock in the CFL now Ryan would you be sort of a purist of NFL or would you be watching the CFL nowadays no I watch quite a bit of, uh, I mean I can only watch as much CFL as they put on ESPN, but it's it's, re- it's really, really good, actually. It's quite a fun game, and how the defence have got any chance when the offence gets to start about 10, 15 yards back and sprint, and then as long as they haven't crossed the line of scrimmage before the ball snaps, they can be at full pace. That's I have awesome. no idea how defensive back deals with that. So it is a really different game. It's very it's exciting. There's, I mean, it is... I'm not an expert in it at all, and I, and I don't know it inside out. But it seems like a game very much set up to be offense, 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 and score, score, score. But you know, it's um, got bigger, bigger end zones. It's it's got I think a wider field. It, you know, and like I say, the, the the receivers can start running way before the balls even snap. So it's it's certainly an interesting game. You got to watch it. Yeah, it's pretty entertaining. Like, um, and as well as that, I remember watching indoor football, and they have like mics in their helmets and stuff. And some of the stuff you'll you'll watch anything sometimes when you just want to be entertained. And you know, even back then, back in the forties, the NFL always tried to find a way to increase people coming to the stadiums to give them the revenue to try make the game uh, take off. So they enacted some rule changes back then as well, didn't they, to sort of make it a bit more fluid and stuff like that. Yeah. You looked into that side of the ball because they started to do that with rugby because down in the Southern Hemisphere, you know, of today, people are kind of getting bored. They've saturated the market, whereas back then they did the exact same with the NFL. Yeah, and, uh, and obviously there was a, you know, the, the, the whole war thing of the players going away, it was hugely negative and, and you know, a horrible time for, 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 you know, anybody involved in that. But at this time, the the league obviously had to try and counteract what was going on. Yeah. And so uh, there was one big, big rule change that came in that has actually now, without a doubt, changed the game at the time and shaped it now all these years later. And that's before, well, basically before the war and everybody had full squads and, and sort of plenty of players to pick from, you could only have a certain amount of of substitutions within yeah. each quarter. So where we spoke about in previous uh, podcasts where we've talked about players playing on both sides of the ball, punting and kicking, you know, we'd have, I mean, that, I know that sort of continued um, sort of up because we know that Jerry Kramer obviously kicked the ball, but you're saying Don Hudson was kicking the ball. So, you know, all these things were going on back then. And obviously it's now sort of become clear as to why. They only had a certain amount of substitutions, which is why players were playing both ways. Yeah. At the time, they decided that because then they started to sort of lack in the amount of players they had available, players were maybe obviously wearing out, tiring out, um, players were maybe injured. So they started to try and 
basically they had what was called the free substitution rule. So their players could come in and out at any point if they felt tired, if they felt like they had an injury, whatever. I think it was the first, the first sort of effort to try and start protecting the players a bit more. Yeah. Um, and obviously this led to then having separate players on offence and defence and started to have positional specialists. Um, you know, we have big squads today where you have a, a, obviously an offensive squad, a defensive squad, and you have the special team squad. Back then, you had one squad and everybody played everywhere. Yeah. So this this particular rule is actually um, credited, if you like. This change was credited with shaping the game for all those years later. I mean, it's, it's clever rule changing, and it's amazing that sometimes it's not the tactics of the coaches on the field. It's the guys in the back office who create the rules to make the game a bit more palatable. And, you know, it, as we said earlier, Don Hudson, when he became just a pure receiver almost, now I know he was doing a bit of kicking, but uh, when he became a pure receiver and wasn't playing safety, he became a far better receiver and he was unrivaled. Um, but something that happened from 1948 onwards, we kind of see the demise of Curly Lambeau. So for those who have the opinion that Curly Lambeau was a legend, did nothing wrong, um, we're about to sort of burst your bubble in a way. 1948, uh, Green Bay, you know, they started off the season quite slow, but they played the Chicago Cardinals and they lost 17-7. And Lambeau, again, I, you know, I saw this interview on YouTube with Don Hudson when he was an old man and they asked him, was Curly Lambeau a disciplinarian? He said, yeah, he kind of was with certain players. Johnny Blood got a lot of discipline. So, like, we all know the way Johnny Blood used to go on and that made sense. But in this game... That guy, the, yeah, that guy needed it. Oh, but that, you see, that's the point. Like, you, you can't let that guy run but, loose. But you still, they, by sounds of it, nobody could tame him. No. Contain him. <laughs> no one could keep him on, a, on an even keel, could they? It's funny because actually uh, Don Hudson said in that interview, he said, you know, he was disciplinarian with Johnny Blood. When he joined and Johnny was there, he said they played five weeks and Johnny didn't get paid once. And in fact, he ended up owing the Packers $200. <laughs> in fines. <laughs> in fines. So he'd been fined that much. And speaking of, so, you know, they lost 17-7 and Curly Lambeau thought that he said, and this is a quote, that the players were being indifferent. So the players disagreed. They're like, we're not being indifferent. But he said, I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm charging you half your weekly wage. You're not getting it because you're indifferent. So they went, all right, fair enough. So they said, look, the next week, lads, let's wax the Rams. They went out and beat the Rams 16-0 and thought that they'd get their money back. But they didn't. So the morale just dropped off to zero. They just had no interest in playing. Um, so they lost every single game after that Rams game. And they slumped to a, an awful record. And then, of course, Curly Lambeau decides to return their money at the end of the season, right? Too little, too late. And the Packers had no interest. But, you know, that really annoyed. It kind of showed the public and the players a different side to Lambeau. But really, when you look behind it all... They were having money struggles. The AAFC, as we said, they were pushing up wages and the attendance was dwindling because the Packers, again, were starting to struggle a little bit and lose. So in 1948-49, the record was 5-19. and So, you know, it dropped off. There was a stage, and if you can try and imagine it in today, you can't do it because they say officially, and I don't know, Ryan, maybe you know this, for a certain amount of years, every game in Lambeau Field has completely sold out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's one of obviously the things that really drives the team and, and, and really finances the team, obviously. But when you just said that uh, that season record, then sorry, I thought that was like a modern day that'd be the Detroit Lions, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's it's very comparable, but it's crazy that back at this time. So now they sell out, and you know it's blasphemy if if it's not sold out. But back then, the the, the attendance at one stage dropped to less than five thousand. And the Packers at the time lost 150 grand. So the media and the commissioner have said, right, lads, look, this can't carry on. Now, again, this, it's like a broken record stuff because this happens throughout all the Packers' history that, 
they're always being forced by the media or by the commissioner himself to move. So he said, you know, San Francisco or Houston would love a franchise like you. Um, so, you know, there's a high likelihood that you're going to have to move. So again, you know, the people of Green Bay to the rescue are amazing. They raised 50 grand because they had it sort of an intra-squad game with all the Packer greats, you know, all the sort of all-decade team sort of dudes. So they brought yeah. them onto the field and th- there's some absolute players on the all-decade team. And funnily enough, at this stage, the all-decade team was made up of, you know, Johnny Blood and Don Hudson and Tony Canadeo and all this. But again, the 1960s swung around. They did an all-decade team then again, and were all just full of the Lombardi Packers. But you kind of had a look into around, didn't you, the all-decade team and some of the characters that were on there and just some of their accomplishments back in the day of when football was starting. Yeah, I mean, every time we do these, I, I like to get a look at who was in the de- the all-decade team. Because yeah. one, I think as well, it tells you about how the Packers were perceived in that era. And even to a, to an extent, how successful they were during that era. Now, obviously, we're doing this by decade, so it fits in perfectly to to the NFL Hall of Fame's all-decade all teams. And in the last couple, uh, the 20s and the 30s, you know, we had sort of six, seven, eight, nine players in those in those teams. Yeah. Um, during these, in the years in the 40s, we only actually had three players that were named to that all-decade team. You know, now there were players of note for the time, and we've already spoke about Irv Comp and Ted Frisch and, and all their achievements. They didn't make it. Don Hudson, Cecil Ebel, uh, and Arnie Herber, they were in the 30s, um, and then they went into those teams. So in the 40s, we're left with just the three players. Tony Canadeo, we've already spoken about, yeah. uh, and we know his what he did. And then there were two others. Um, starting off with Charlie Brock, who played from 39 to 47 every year with the Green Bay Packers. Again, a player that played both ways. Uh, he was a centre on on the offensive side of the ball and a linebacker on the defensive side of the ball. He was, um, I don't know that he was necessarily a captain, but he was a real sort of strong man in, in the team leadership, sort of that. They say now, you know, a strong guy in the locker room, that, yeah. sort, of, that sort of guy. And um, he won... He won Two world championships with with the Packers um, during his time. Uh, another player that won two world championships is a guy called, and this is great because you know I love my nicknames. Oh yeah, Bu- Buford Baby Ray. Oh baby. Yeah. So um, I mean, it's it's, it's a great name. Uh, he came out of Vanderbilt. He he's said to be a, a dominating blocker and a defensive tackle. And one of his most famous plays. I mean, this guy's six foot six. And he's, he's, he weighs more than 280 pounds, you know. Um, and that was in college. He was 280 pounds. So one of his most famous plays for Green Bay is he blocks a punt against Detroit. Um, and it's blocked and it's recovered for a safety. And, 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 and we end up winning that game 12-7. So that was something that he was famous for. Um, but that's it. It's the three players, Canadeo, Brock and Baby Ray. And that's the three for the time. So... Big players, like I say, other other players of note around that time. But I think it probably tells you a lot about what was going on with the Green Bay Packers during the 40s that we've only made sort of minimal impact on that all-decade team as opposed to the teams in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, because we have to remember the Chicago Bears were quite dominant back then. There was an awful lot of good squads and it's not going to get a whole lot better because in 1949, they fell to fifth. So 48, they were fourth in the Western Division. So 49, they were fifth. It was their worst record on history. And people were getting restless, so they called for a Lambeau's head. So the organization, as we said, like it was on the brink of disaster um, financially. So Lambeau eventually resigned on February 1st. Now, what happened to him was is the board 
uh, you know they didn't they didn't get along with Lambo because again he wanted to keep ultimate control and they said no we're not having it uh, he had no players that you know again because of the war uh, and also because he'd spent an awful lot of money he bought a place called Rockwood Lodge he spent 32 grand on it and it was the only sort of you know training facility secluded training facility away from everybody in the league then he spent eight grand for renovations that nearly bankrupted the Packers at the time and as yeah. well as that like the, there was limestone underneath the field so it was dangerous it was slippy it was sore to fall on so two of the board of directors they almost resigned when he bought it um, so he had to cut his, the salaries that's when he went and said to the lads here listen I'm finding you a half a week salary and this was meant to be the stuff all behind it because they were, they were, look they were on a slippery slope to bankruptcy they would have been done uh, so they gave Lambeau a new contract but they basically just stripped him of all of his powers and he mm-hmm. rejected of course and resigned now again not a lot of people sort of know this and they just know Lambeau Lambeau Field has the statue outside the stadium as we said but he went off to the um, Chicago Cardinals the coach so as a rival team he went off there um, but he never he never saw the same success. He went off the the Chicago Cards for fifty and fifty one. Then he went off to the Redskins in fifty two and fifty three. But he got into a tiff uh, with the owner of the Redskins in the hotel lobby, and he fired him on the spot. Said, "I'll see you." Uh, so that was the end of of Curly Lambeau. Uh, the, the chap married three times, uh, accord, uh, apparently to a Miss California as well. But again, even his marriages were short lived. Uh, I think the longest was like fifteen years. He was married to five years. I think to Miss California. She decided to leave. Um, he died at age 67 in Wisconsin. He was mowing his girlfriend's lawn. So, I mean, you can take innuendo out of that if you like. I was uh, going to say uh, <laughs> the garden. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's let's keep it clean. He was in Sturgeon Bay, 1965 in June, and that's actually how the stadium becomes Lambeau Field because it was built and for eight years it was kind of called the second, you know, the second Milwaukee City Stadium. I think they call it. But after he died, then they got all sentimental and called it Lambeau, Lambeau Field. But, you know, he wasn't um, the hero at the very end at all. Now, again, people are very affectionate towards him, but it did kind of go downhill at the end. And they ended up then, you wouldn't believe, right, this Rockwood Lodge place, the, you know, limestone under the field, it, you know, it cost 32 grand. So they were near bankruptcy, but all of a sudden a mysterious fire breaks out, right, for Rockwood Lodge uh, in 1950 and saves the Packers from ruin because they get a 50 grand insurance check. Now, that crime is unsolved to this day. They do know it was started deliberately. They don't know by who, but lo and behold, the 50 grand that they got off the insurance check happened to save the Packers. I mean, suspicious. Is that a, is that a move along nothing to see here type moment? It's exactly a move along nothing to see. It's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, they, they even reopened the case, you know, a few years back to, to have a documentary, I think, on Fox. And lo and behold, I couldn't find anybody first. But, uh, you know, I just think that's brilliant. You know, that back Not then guilty. in the 50s, you know, just the, the place goes up on fire. And the, the, the only one thing that was rescued from it was a pencil sketch of Curly Lambeau himself. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I, you know what? Number I have, one suspect. I know I have these visions. I just have him and a balaclava running out the back door with just that sketch he loved of himself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Was it, was it or was it, did he get his old mate Blood McNally back and something went horribly wrong? <laughs> They were playing cards and there was too much liquor and somebody dropped a cigarette and I don't know. <laughs> we're speaking ill of the dead here. We're framing people now, you know, <laughs> 70 years later. So yeah, that was the end of uh, poor old Curly. So again, just to tie up the podcast, I suppose, uh, 1949, you know, this is a weird part of it as well. You know, we're used to Vince Lombardi being all-inclusive. He had white players and black players and, he, you know, he he wasn't 
when it came to sort of you know issues of homosexuality his brother was gay so he never went out and spoke out about it when that was the culture at the times he was very liberal about it you know which again we see now is a no-brainer god but back then it was you know a big taboo so in 1949 green bay were the last team on an all-white team and there was only 17 residents of green bay who were actually african-american but after world war ii that all changed um, so more black Americans started to sign with the teams. And the first black player in Green Bay was a guy, uh, he'll go down in history as Bob Mann. So I think everyone knows Bob. Um, 1950, Curly's gone. So they have to get a new guy in as head coach. And that's Gene Ronzani. He comes in, but again, like he was given a deteriorated team. You know, he didn't have anything to really work with. So they allowed the most points against them in Packers history that a rookie quarterback, uh, Tobin, wrote. Again, like he was struggling, you know, they lost eight of their last nine games. And that's when Tony Canadeo retired. He he left at the end of the season. And this is a year that we kind of see as a bit of transformation. So the NFL and the AAFC finally merge. Uh, so they had three, to- three teams from the AAFC, which was the Cleveland Browns, the Niners and the Colts. They joined the NFL. Now they left the name as the NFL, which apparently annoyed people at the time because they thought, look, it's meant to be a merger. So why are you still called the NFL? But as you can see, we all got over it. Um, so the, there was a team called the New York Yankees. They were sort of divided up. They gave some of the lads to the Giants, some of the lads to the Bulldogs. There was a team called the LA Dons. They just merged them with the LA Rams. And then every other player was kind of allocated out to the rest of the teams. They just sort of divvied them up and sent them off. The Buffalo Bills then were absorbed into the Cleveland Browns, who were the most dominant team at the time. So times were a changing, but eventually there was peace in World War II, 1945. You know, the world was kind of getting back to normal. And then in 1950, there was peace on the football front when the AAFC joined the NFL and everyone was happy and could play together. So, you know, that's when we sort of see as time goes on, the 50s, again, we're going to do next is a pretty grisly time for the Packers. It sure is, yeah. So that's it, Ryan, um, for this podcast. So I hope everybody enjoyed it. And again, I mean, look up the likes of Don Hudson. Who's your favorite, Ryan, from that period that you really feel? Well, Johnny McNally probably would be one of the deals. I know he's kind of from the 30s. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to go Canada. I mean, it, like I said, those that are going to Green Bay this year, um, obviously there's a lot in that Packers Hall of Fame about every player that's in it. Um, the guys that have got the retired jerseys, you know, go in there, read all about him. Uh, it really was quite something, so I think I'd go Canada. Yeah. But I've got, I've got. I'm going to ask you a quick question, then I'm going to test you on your research. Oh, here we go. Okay. So in '44, the Packers win against the Giants. Okay. Yeah. A game, by the way, that they play in New York at the Polo Grounds. Yeah. Right. So we win essentially in their in their backyard. But who is the former Packer that's the quarterback of the Giants? Oh, I don't... I don't know. Um, so it's not Isabel. It's not Arnie Herber, is it? It's Arnie Herber. Oh. <laughs> oh so wait. Arnie Herber, who leaves, who leaves the, um, the Packers and then ends up as the quarterback of the Giants, and then we go there. Um, the Packers apparently were slight favourites at the time. Yeah. Um, and then we obviously... We went there and beat them. So... I love it. Not, not too much sentiment no, for I, Arnie Herber. I love it because, you know, if you were going by a movie-style thing, Arnie Herber would win because we had that whole story. Now, Arnie Herber, apparently, you know, he didn't do too fresh the year before he left the Packers. So when they gave him the contract, it was actually written into the contract they were going to fine him $50 a week if he was over £195. He was £208 when he signed the contract. That'll give you a sort of indication <laughs> of what type of guy Arnie Herber was. Um, and then, as if anyone listens to our Series 2 podcast, 
check it out because there's a funny little story about why Arnie, Arnie Herber actually left. They say because he, you know, he dropped off in production and he got fat, but there was a real interesting, real story as to why he went and it's very scandalous and it's to do with alimony payments and Curly Lambo. But again, we won't, we won't sort of, you know, break out the secrets too much. So that's um, part three. Uh, do check out on iTunes, search UK Packers and check out part one and part two. It's some really interesting stuff. And we're going to, tre- you know, trying to bring you these history podcasts and get all the way up to the present day. We might get sidelined a little bit when training camp starts and we're doing the post reviews and previews. But again, let us know what you think of us. Uh, leave a review on iTunes and it's been an absolute pleasure again. So from myself at NFL on Twitter, I have to bid you farewell. And from at Ryan Peacock, NFL. I'm sure, Ryan, you could say goodbye for yourself. Yep. Goodbye. <laughs> I, I can't say it in Irish. I think you should finish in Irish. Slongafol. No, go on. So say goodbye. Slongafol. Oh, that was it. I yeah. thought it. I thought it went funny again. You thought I got sick again. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodbye. See you guys.